Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Hello and welcome to Myth Makers. Myth Makers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding and today I want to talk to you about the issue of why it is dangerous to study Tolkien. And yes here I am looking at you academics Uh, all those people out there who are producing these great big books on Tolkien these days. We're going to look at why it is so dangerous what they are doing. But first of all, let's give this some historical context. There's a short-term historical context and there's a longer term. So looking further back, 50 years ago when Tolkien passed away in 1973, It would have been very unnatural for people to suggest that he would be studied at university. That was still the true when it came to the 80s, when I was at college myself. He was regarded as, on one hand, an English professor of older languages, medieval and Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic, those languages. Um, But he was also well known, of course, as a writer of popular fiction. And it's that popular there which made him thought to be below the interest of academic study. Now, in the 80s, that was just beginning to change. It'd be quite interesting to find out when the very first academic article was written about him, actually. So if you know, do send me a line. But at the end of my undergraduate study at Cambridge, I told my supervisor that I wanted to do my final thesis on Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and creativity. That's the whole idea of Mythopoeia, the sub-creation, the secondary creativity of uh, the author and other creatives in a context where you think of there being like a creator god. That's how they perceive creativity. And I found that idea really inspiring because it gave you the idea that you could be a sub-creator of your own world. And in a way, for me, that released a whole sort of new aspect to creativity. Anyway, when I said I wanted to do this, so this is Cambridge in the late 80s, there was a bit of a hmm from uh, the people who were in charge of finding me a supervisor. They did find me one and I was allowed to do it. But there was definitely a feeling that it wasn't quite fully academic. I remember even thinking at the time that surely it'd be fine because I'm doing all these, you know, stiff papers on tragedy and, uh, you know, all sorts of other serious subjects. So I was allowed to do a little bit of what I actually loved in my thesis. 
And I think that attitude was prevalent uh, in the university systems of the 80s, began to fade a bit in the 90s, but still today you can find an element of sniffiness about Tolkien. I noticed, for example, that most universities who do teach Tolkien tend to do him as a gateway to medieval and old English. It's as though he's a sort of gateway drug. Once you get hooked on Tolkien, you'll then be interested in Beowulf and Sir Gawain in the Green Knight. It's, it's kind of a utilitarian way of looking at Tolkien rather than someone to be studied in their own right, as you would study Dickens or you know Jane Austen. It has to be linked to something which is already recognisably an academic discipline. OK, so things are changing. And I think that's thanks to the work of scholars in the 90s and the 2000s. But certainly to say you wanted to study Tolkien at that stage in the 80s and 90s was dangerous. It was a career risk, really. But now we've moved on to a different kind of danger. And this was brought home to me at the beginning of the month of September 2023, when there were two conferences running in Oxford at the same time. Both were there to mark the 50-year anniversary since the death of Tolkien. One of these conferences was the Tolkien Society Entmoot, which took place at St Catherine's College. If you went to that, do let me know how it went. I met a couple of people who participated in that, uh, so it seemed to be good fun. But a more sort of rigorously academic conference was held at uh, the much smaller college right next door to the college where Tolkien was uh, a professor. So it's next door to Merton College. And it's a tiny little college called Corpus Christi. And that was aimed at the academic world. So we had leading scholars such as John Garth, uh, Michael Ward, Holly Ordway. And it was convened by a Tolkien expert called Giuseppe um, Pazzini. Now, this one was a day and a half conference and it brought home to me the dangers of actually studying Tolkien in great depth, but in a, in a new way. So what did I learn from this conference? I thought I would kind of report back to you to give you some of a, a flavour of the studies that are going on about Tolkien at the moment, because many people were talking about upcoming articles or books they've just published. The first insight it gave me is how international study of Tolkien has become. So we had scholars from all over the world. I've mentioned Giuseppe Pezzini, who, uh, who, who convened the conference. He obviously is Italian. Um, but we had Yoko Hemi from Japan, showing that interest in Tolkien has gone over there, which isn't that surprising because when I was doing my own doctorate in the Romantic period, it was clear that there was a great love of British nature writing, so sort of Romantic poets in that case. But I can totally understand the connection between the nature-loving Japanese um, culture and Tolkien's work. And there was also a scholar from Poland called Wukash Neubauer and so on. There was lots of real international flavour to that room. Plus the participants were from all over as well. Uh, so it gave me a sense of the breadth of Tolkien's scholarship. So what were the highlights of the conference? Well, there were many. Um, 
couple of the things I, I loved listening to. So, for example, Michael Ward who you might be aware of as the author of Planet Narnia. So he's well known for his work on C.S. Lewis. And in Planet Narnia, he gives a revelation about how you can read the Narnia stories, mapping it onto medieval cosmology. But he's turned his attention to Tolkien and Tolkien's use of the calendar. Michael's own background is as is, he's a Catholic. So he's particularly aware of the the church calendar from Catholicism and how it might be brought to bear on Lord of the Rings. Now, obviously, already you probably noticed if you looked at the appendices, some key dates. So, for example, um, the the actual birthday when Frodo and Bilbo have their birthday, but also when both Bilbo and Frodo set off on their journeys is the 22nd of September. And that's very close to um, St Michaelmas. That is a sort of the, the autumn festival of the church. And then when they leave Rivendell, it falls on the 25th of December, which is, that's Christmas. I'm sure you know. Uh, Tolkien apparently said that was just a happy coincidence, but he was happy with the coincidence. But what was totally on purpose was the date in which the ring goes into the cracks of doom. And that is the 25th of March, which is Lady Day in the old festivals. And it was the day on which the church's new year was dated. It's, it's uh, Mary's Day in the church. So it's the beginning of a new year, which you see that sense of moving into a new age is very much linked to the day on which the ring is destroyed. Anyway, so those are well-known dates that have significance. But what Michael Ward was doing was looking at the date, the 8th of April. You're scratching your head thinking, what happens on the 8th of April? Well, it's the date on which the scene, the fields of Cormalin takes place. Now, perhaps this is a scene that you don't think about very much. Um, it comes after the uh, the ring has gone into the fire, but before they go back to Gondor for the coronation of Aragorn. It's when Sam and Frodo wake up and there is a feast in their honour. They're reunited with most of the fellowship, the ones who survive, and they hear a song about their journey sung by a bard which fulfills a kind of moment a wish which they express when when they're in the darkest part of their tale um, on the stairs of Kirith Ungol. Anyway this actual scene Michael was stressing was the most important scene in the entirety of the Lord of the Rings to Tolkien. So obviously go back and read it now. Now you've heard that and he showed us a photograph of the manuscript Tolkien talks about crying as he writes this and sure enough on the manuscript there are teardrops which I found so moving to see that why is it important well lots of reasons but it is the moment in which they are recognized it doesn't make it into the Peter Jackson films if that's your main familiarity with Lord of the Rings but it is referenced, I suppose, at the coronation where Aragorn says no one bows to you and everybody bows and the four hobbits are left standing. In the novel version of that same sentiment, Aragorn puts Frodo and Sam on his 
thrown his chair. Uh, and that's when everybody recognises their heroism. That's important because it's the reward, it's the payoff, it's the happiest moment. And for Tolkien, it was the culmination because, of course, then they get the song, which is like his book. It's telling of their their heroism. Anyway, that's an important scene. Yes, we can all agree that. But why is it set on the 8th of April? I will leave Michael to publish his article about it. But let it be said that there is a connection between the private story of Tolkien and his wife and what happens nine months later, a sort of a sense of that. So um, actually, no, it's the other way around. It's what happened nine months before. There we go. Michael, I was listening. Um, I actually was thinking maybe that might be going a bit far on reading into dates, but this is where academics will squabble, squabble with each other. Um, but anyway, it was fun to think through the significance of the calendar. Another excellent highlight was from Professor Simon Horobin. He currently holds the same position at Magdalen College that C.S. Lewis held during his lifetime when he was at Magdalen. He's a medievalist. He's been writing mostly about C.S. Lewis recently, but he's been looking at how C.S. Lewis was converted by Tolkien. Now, not to faith, but to, into an appreciation for philology, which obviously was Tolkien's world of linguistics and languages. So how this works out is that C.S. Lewis finished his first degree, which was basically classics, as we now call it. And he was told in order to be more employable at university level, he should take some of the papers from the English syllabus so that he could p potentially get a job in the English faculty. It's turned out to be excellent careers advice because that's exactly what happened. But one of the things he had to do is go and sit through some lectures of a professor of philology, a guy called Professor Wilde. And clearly he took strongly against this professor to the extent that he had his textbook and he kept writing poems in dishonour of this professor, how much he disliked every word that came from his mouth. But the funny thing is he was doing it in different languages. So there's a, a Latin one and there's an old English one and so on. Um, the old English one is quite remarkable because he'd only just started learning old English. So he'd had to really struggle with that one. And there was a German one and so on. And the revelation that Simon had was by showing this primer, this textbook to a handwriting expert on C.S. Lewis was to find out that the handwriting was actually indicative of 10 years of C.S. Lewis's handwriting because it changed over that time. So you get a picture, not just that he was annoyed by this guy sitting there as a, a young man, as a student, but he was still carrying this, you know, annoyance 10 years later when he was a colleague in the same faculty, which was, I must admit, absolutely hilarious. But that was the bad version of philology, which C.S. Lewis really disliked. And it took meeting Tolkien with his love of language and showing him the 
the possibilities of a love of language and the inspirational love of language that then C.S. Lewis changed his mind about the value of the subject. And in fact, you'll remember if you've read his Out of the Silent Planet and his um, Ransom trilogy, the space stories, that a philologist is, becomes his hero. A little bit of a nod there to Tolkien. Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace, starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. And John Garth was there, uh, which was great because I'd never met him and I've used his books a lot, uh, particularly the ones about the places that inspired Tolkien's work. It's a wonderful book. Um, save, save up your pennies um, for that book. He's also, of course, written about Tolkien and the Great War. Uh, he's currently working on Tolkien and literary biographies. And this is one of the ways in which a conference is so great, because while I was listening to his work and talking about the suspicion that Tolkien had about literary biography, because how, how do any of us know what really goes on in the mind of any author, even the author themselves. But it made me think about Tolkien himself as a kind of biographer, the way he tells the same life stories again and again. So take, for example, Beren and Luthien. He tells that in prose. He tells it in poetry. He tells it um, in longer form, shorter form so many versions of the same tale. So he himself, even though they're fictional characters, he treats them as real people in this suspended disbelief that he has. He makes Middle Earth real, so therefore these are real historical figures within his own creation. Um, so that I was thinking about that and the relationship, how he has to uh, find a way to be a biographer himself. Anyway, so that was great listening to John Garth. Holly Ordway, who people who listen to this podcast um, will have met her recently on two occasions. Her book on Tolkien's faith has just come out and I'm about halfway through that myself, learning a lot. But she also uh, has written a book called Tolkien's Modern Reading about all the material post-1850 that Tolkien read. And she was drawing on some of that for what she was talking about at the conference. And it underlined something she touched on in her interview with me, which is about how different Tolkien was to other writers focusing on the kind of empire period in British history. The scene in Lord of the Rings, which brings this to the fore, there's the skirmish with the Southrons. And Sam sees for the first time the war of men against men and he sees a fallen victim from the enemy side. 
They've just met Faramir's men. The Mumakil, the big elephant thing, comes through the landscape with the men alongside. And Sam is horrified. And he has this moment of humanity where he thinks about what was it that brought this man here and his motives and how he in a way is the hero of his own tale how he has his own reasons for being here not looking at the enemy as wholly evil so one of the things that this sets him apart this is Tolkien now is that he always questioned the existing race relations of his day having been born in South Africa. He had no truck with that system. He hated it. He said he hated it. And when he was um, asked by a German publisher in the 30s about his Aryan background, he was very unhappy about that kind of questioning. So if Holly was comparing Tolkien's approach to the more gung-ho boys' own stories of the era which schoolboys of his generation brought up with, with their stereotypical views of natives. You couldn't, even that word native is problematic, isn't it? Um, Things which we find totally abhorrent now were accepted as being just ordinary then. Uh, And it was his reading against that kind of casual racism which led to such scenes in Lord of the Rings. So anyway, that was lovely to hear her talking about that. And one of my favourite speeches of the whole uh, conference was the convener's uh, Giuseppe Pezzini's because he talked about Tolkien's creative process. And I thought I'd share with you a couple of the quotes that he came up with because they're such they're such fun. Um, and as an author, I find this really inspiring. So Tolkien is asked, what is Lord of the Rings about? So he writes in one of his letters, the Lord of the Rings is to me anyway, largely an essay in linguistic ascetic. As I sometimes say to people who ask me what it is all about, It is not about anything but itself. If you've read the preface to Lord of the Rings, you'll see that he tries to separate himself from any simplistic allegory about, uh, you know, the ring being the atom bomb and so on. Um, But he's saying that what it is about is exploring the beauty of the languages he was creating. And then the stories grow out of that. It doesn't mean you as the reader can't find applications to our lived experience but he doesn't want you to feel that you've got a one-on-one allegory going on and he goes on in a letter to his son Christopher no one believes me when I say that my long book is an attempt to create a world in which a form of language agreeable to my personal ascetic might seem real but it is true An inquirer, among many, asked what the Lord of the Rings was all about and whether it was an allegory. And I said it was an effort to create a situation in which a common greeting would be Elen, Sila, Lumen, Omi and Tielmo. And that was the phrase, and that phrase long antedated the book. Uh, forgive, Forgive me if my Elvish 
pronunciation isn't up to scratch. But that's the greeting. I think Frodo says it to um, the elves on first meeting. So it echoes throughout the Lord of the Rings. And he had this language in his head and thought, okay, I've got this wonderful language. Let's go and write the place in which it could be spoken. So from that tiny seed grew this enormous myth. And when I look at my own experience as a as an author, obviously I'm nothing like to the nothing of the standard of Tolkien, but I've written a lot of books. I can see similar seeds which get into the creative process and they sprout. So for example, my very first novel is set in Drury Lane Theatre and it led to a series of six books. And that came about because I grew fascinated by the historic the location of Drury Lane Theatre in 1790s because it was in a particularly exciting part of London at a pivotal moment in history. French Revolution is going on. And so I thought and studied and dreamed about the place and eventually thought, well, I've got to have a story. I want to live here, so I'm going to occupy it by writing a story where I can go from the down from the basement up to the attics. And that's how that book grew. It came from a place. So if place was my spark, language was Tolkien's. Have you noticed that there is on some editions of Lord of the Rings uh, a kind of initial of Tolkien where each of his letters, J-R-R, are put over the top of each other? It's quite a strong, almost like emblem emblem or a heraldic device that goes on the front of some of the books. It looks like something that might appear on a flag. You can see the J and the R and the R um, there, sort of all laid on top of each other, something Tolkien designed. But there's also a sort of loop sticking out on one side, which kind of looks, oh, maybe that's just a flourish. But actually between... Um, John Garth and Holly Ordway, who've obviously been talking about this um, between them, they've worked out that this is actually because Tolkien had a name that we've all kind of ignored. So yes, he's John Ronald Rule, but he had another forename. This was the name he took when he got baptised as a Catholic when he was about 10. And that name was Philip, a P. And he does actually use it in his correspondence. It's a name that was important to him because it was part of his life of faith, which is obviously you know, a big part of Tolkien's worldview. So that had been hidden there in plain sight and all of us had ignored it because it's not on the spine of the book. So I suppose we should be calling him John Ronald Rule Philip. That's a bit a bit much, isn't it? So perhaps we'll just stick with J-R-R-R. But anyway, uh, now I can look at that initial and see what's really going on underneath the surface. There were two more wonderful parts of the conference, which were the exhibitions where we got a chance to see the manuscripts, um, things belonging or indicative of Tolkien's life in Oxford. The first was an exhibition at uh, an annex of Exeter College. Exeter was where Tolkien was a young man, an undergraduate. They had him signing in as he joined Oxford for the first time. 
That must have been a very special moment for him. They had pictures of him and his rugby team, his year photo. And of course, that has the added um, melancholy because so many of the people in that picture didn't make it through the First World War. And we all recognise that Lord of the Rings has this undertow of melancholy and the loss of companions. And seeing those faces of those hopeful young men in sort of 1913 is very, very moving. But he had, even in his, I suppose the teenager, isn't he? Teenage Tolkien had wonderful handwriting. So puts us all to shame. And then the second of his, he had several colleges in Oxford, but the one where he spent a lot of his time as a professor which was Merton College, they put together an exhibition of letters and other things that that he'd written during his time at the college there. In fact, it was a college that he retired to and he lived in college accommodation until very late in his life. He, he, there was a few year, years when he went away and lived in Bournemouth, which is a seaside town with his wife. When his wife passed away, he lived in college accommodation. It just so happened he was down in Bournemouth visiting friends when he had his final illness. So he died in hospital down there. But anyway, it was very lovely on this anniversary year to see, again, things that connect us to the man himself, the pages he's touched, the letters he's written, the kind of things that were going on in his head. And also just to mention that Merton College Library is the most gorgeous ancient library. Uh, the building itself is so inspiring. You can think of the libraries in Gondor must have looked something like that. Why is it dangerous to study Tolkien? I started off by saying it was dangerous in the 80s because it was looked on as being not sufficiently academic. I think now we've reached a point where it's suddenly going to be a very popular area to study. There are some things which are going to help that. There's a new edition of his letters that is about to come out or shortly. I'm not sure we know the exact date, but soon. And these will bring into uh, everybody's reach more letters than were in the original volume edited by Humphrey Carpenter. And Holly Aldway has pointed out when I interviewed her that quite a lot of the selections that Humphrey Carpenter made when he was editing that volume are ones which uh, cut off the, some interesting parts of the letter. There's some lack of sympathy between Humphrey Carpenter and his subject, some biases, which you can see if you read the full letters. I think that's how she describes it. Uh, is, but anyway, there are shortcomings. So we'll have to get the new volume when it comes out. We want to see the full letter without these editorial interference. And that will encourage scholars to uncover yet more new angles to Tolkien. And I think the danger now is that Tolkien is an er is a author who has such depth. He connects not just to medieval and old English Viking sagas and so on. You can look at him in that sense, but he also connects to the classical tradition. This is particularly in the Silmarillion with it's quite uh, harsh. It feels They feel more like Greek tragedies, many of the stories there. And if we think about him having done classics first, as many did in their generation, you can see those influences. 
So there is so much to uncover, but there's also a lot to understand in about Tolkien's shaping of our modern period, the cultural reception of Tolkien, which only grows in scope as time passes. And I'm not talking here about fandom only, though that's a big part of it. I'm talking about how he has given us a shared language to describe good and evil, for example, and how he has shaped the idea of what fantasy looks like and what it does. I think we're very lucky it was him to kick this all off because his work is so rewarding of this in-depth study. So where does the danger come? The danger comes in in that you can get lost in that as a creative. I think that there is a famous book called The Anxiety of Influence, which if you've done any uh, English literature you will remember from your 20th century literary criticism. But the thesis there is that we all get kind of overwhelmed by the voices that have come before us and it kind of stifles our own creativity. I think as a creative and if, as a fantasy creative in particular, what you need to do is you need to be able to enjoy, but also to a certain extent, use as a springboard or set aside an escape. You've got to walk out of your fascination with Tolkien so that you don't just make ersatz, poor versions of Tolkien's world. You've got to think, well, what would it be for me? And going back to what I've been describing in this podcast, I think the key thing is to find out your seed. If you're interested in languages, great, have at it, make up your own language. Um, do, do something different. Don't do elves, do something completely different and see where you go. But it could also be a place like I was describing or a certain character. You might find somebody in the real world who's for you a fascinating character study and you want to sort of sit and play with that character. It could be a historical character, for example, which would lead you to explore a whole kind of uh, historical fantasy. For So make sure you find your own seed and you grow it and you don't say stay doing the equivalent of fan fiction within Middle Earth, because of course there is only one Tolkien and any attempts to come on afterwards to expand his world have not been entirely satisfactory, have they? So I would say it is dangerous to study Tolkien, but by George it is also a wonderful, pleasurable, delightful experience. So yeah, danger deep water but also it's quite fun to swim thank you very much for listening thanks for listening to myth makers podcast brought to you by the oxford center for fantasy visit oxfordcenterforfantasy.org to join in the fun find out about our online courses in-person stays in Oxford plus visit our shop for great gifts tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide Hi this is Julia Golding are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer, or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you 
the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace, starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Save big.